Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is our last Sunday for review of 1 Peter 1 and 2. We come back this morning to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 and 12. But before we dig into this morning's verse, uh, let me see if there's anybody who wishes to recite part or all of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 down to chapter 2 verse 10. Is there a taker this morning or takers, plural? All right, come on. Encourage Enya. Come on. Oh, is that? That's not Enya. I'm sorry, I need my glasses on. That's Enya. Daphne, good to see you this morning, sis. Come on. Fantastic. Fantastic. Good job. Good job. Fantastic. I can't see in the dark there. Hey, what's good, brother? What you got? Amen. Amen. Come on. Come on. You better recite that with your chest, bro. That's what's up. That's what's up. Anybody else this morning? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I love hiding God's word in our hearts and, and seeing it come out uh, in various translations and all of that good stuff. So let's, let's turn our attention to God in prayer and let's prepare to hear his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. For you alone are God, and you alone are great. You are majestic in holiness. Lord, your splendor fills eternity. We praise you for, Lord, you are full of mercy, full of compassion, slow to anger. You do all things well. We come to you because we can make our requests known to you. We pray this morning for Erica and for uh, Michael, as they uh, make their trip, Lord, with the girls to Ethiopia, we thank you for their ministry there, the relationships there, and we thank you for the gospel fruit that's being produced there. We praise you for microenterprises and small businesses that help people escape poverty and escape trafficking. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of trauma counseling and other forms of care that, that heal and bind up by your grace. We thank you, Lord, for vision. The vision that you have given them to uh, do something like start a chicken farm, which would produce income to support, Lord, um, people transitioning and pastoral teams and the work of the gospel, Lord, in that country. Lord, we pray not only for the people of Ethiopia, but we pray for the Habisha community around the country, around the world. We pray that your gospel would break out among them in revival. Lord, we thank you that we have this ministry here on the block, and we thank you for the opportunity to represent you here in Southeast D.C. and the greater DMV. We pray, O oh Lord, that you make us faithful to do so. We pray that the way we live would bring you honor and glory and praise on the day of your visitation. We pray that the way we live, O oh Lord, uh, would, would, would protect our own souls and win the souls of others um, in, this, in this day of spiritual warfare. Be with us now as we look into your word. As we look into your word, we pray your word would look into us, that it would search us, that it would point out any unclean way, that it would renew us and, and, and heal us, that we might, Lord, walk with you um, more faithfully. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
doesn't matter how we live. Does our lifestyle have any consequence? In a YOLO kind of world, we might be tempted to think of our lifestyle and that our lifestyle matters more than the outcomes of our lives. After all, you only live once, right? Today, respectable, respectable living has fallen on hard times. For example, many people reject what they call respectability politics. They tell us that how a person lives or their station in life should not determine how they are treated. And we can sympathize with that to an extent. And for example, a person should not be assaulted or accosted or catcalled because they wear certain clothing. And our support for them when that happens shouldn't be based on what they were wearing. A person should not be denied help, government assistance, because they are not the quote unquote deserving poor. And a person shouldn't be denied a job or housing because they identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. All people are made in God's image. And so all people are worthy of being treated with dignity and respect. However, sympathy with respectability politics and rejection of respectability politics can only go so far. So for example, we may support a person's right to drink, but not to drink and drive. We may protect the person's right to wear what they wish, but we can't protect them from the judgments that follow. After all, clothing has meaning, it speaks. A person should not be out of job, as we said before. We, we may even support tougher laws that protect the LBGTQ community from hate crimes. But that should not be confused with an endorsement of sexual behavior. We can't avoid it. How we live always matters. At some point, we'll, we'll see the outcome of it. We'll see the effect of it. So knowing how and why our lives matter is an important mark of maturity and wisdom. It's an important skill for navigating a world that's hostile to holiness. If we were to ask the Apostle Peter, does it matter how we live? Peter would say, absolutely. In fact, Peter would say, how we live matters both for ourselves and for others. It matters for our own well-being, the well-being of our souls, and it matters for the eternal destiny of the souls of people we encounter. And this morning, we're coming back to our series in 1 Peter. It's a series we've called Holiness in a Hostile World. The series title gives away the answer to our opening question. If holiness matters, then it matters how we live. And beloved, holiness still matters. It may even matter more than we're used to thinking. As we look at second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, each of those verses will be a point for us. The first point is this. How we live matters for our personal walk. How we live matters for our personal walk. We'll see that in verse 11. Secondly, how we live matters for our public witness. How we live matters for our public witness. We'll see that in verse 12. And may the Lord help us to live in a way that pleases and honors him. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How we live matters for our personal walk. Again, that's what we see in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you to abstain, notice, from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Peter here is writing with a tender urgency. We see the tenderness in that word beloved. It's a word that the apostles often use referring to the church. You may have a translation that says dear friends. That's a little too weak to capture the tenderness of what Peter is saying. here. He's got a soft voice right now, beloved. And yet he's urgent. He says, I urge you. In other words, this is a matter we need to pay attention to. This is a matter I want to press upon you. This is a matter I want you to consider seriously and respond to. Beloved, I urge you. What I'm about to tell you right now is not something to treat casually. What I'm about to tell you right now is not something to sort of look at briefly and put on a shelf for later. I'm trying to sort of insist, to urge, to, to press this on you because it's, it's deadly serious. So the apostle here breaks out in this family tenderness, but this serious urgency. Many of you are parents, or maybe aunts and uncles, and you know that oftentimes if you want to get your child's attention on something that's serious, you don't just start yelling and flying off the handle. Didn't I tell you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the kid learns to tune that out. More effective oftentimes is to lower your voice and slow down. Boy. Right? Anybody had that kind of mom or dad? And they say something like, didn't I tell you? Right? Now, everybody still, when they hear that, right, when that tone, that's the tone Peter has. He has a, a loving, tender, lower tone that is, is itself communicating the urgency of things. Beloved. I urge you. And what does he urge? Well, he's writing to the Christian church here, and he says, now, you got to first of all remember who you are. He says, as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners is another word for traveler or immigrant, for somebody who doesn't have a permanent home uh, in the land that they're in. Uh, the same is the true with exile. An exile is someone who has been forced from their home and, and forced to live someplace else. And Peter, in his letter here, you remember he began the letter that way. He said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the elect exiles. How did they become exiles? How did they become sojourners? Well, it was because God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit saved them. The Father called them in sanctification, or Spirit called them in sanctification. The Father called them in election, and they were set apart for Christ, sprinkled with his blood for service. So Peter here is saying, referring to them as Christians and, and teaching them that to be Christians mean we have no permanent home in this world. This world is not our home. I know it's cliche, but it's also true. 
This world is not a home. We're not setting up permanent places in this land. We have another home that we're journeying to, that we're traveling to. We are sojourners right now stuck between our old life of sin, now saved and headed toward that heaven that God has prepared for us. And Peter is urgently sort of reminding them of who they are, that they are sojourners and exiles, and because of that, they are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We mentioned this before, but behavior follows identity, right? Who we are determines what we do. If we are sojourners and exiles, if we are Christians living for the Lord, traveling to that heavenly city, that's going to shape now how we engage the world around us, the world that we live in, the neighborhoods that we live in, the workplaces that we go to, the schools that we attend. So he's reminding them that you are, you are sojourners and exiles, and because of that, you have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, to abstain from something simply means to refuse to do it, right? We're coming up on Lenten season, and many Christians during the season of Lent will, will fast from certain things. They'll give up certain things, from the serious to the trivial, all right? So I met someone one time who, for Lent, said, I'm giving up chocolate. She's like, you don't understand. That's a stronghold for me. <laughs> I like everything chocolate. Uh, other folks will give up other things to, to focus on the Lord and to focus on his, his sacrifice, to focus on the cross and the resurrection and to spiritually commune with him. Well, when he says abstain here, he's saying a very similar thing, to, to give up something, to refuse uh, to do something. And Peter calls us to refuse to satisfy the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. By flesh, he doesn't mean just the physical body. He uses it as a metaphor for the old man, the sin nature. Right? We are to abstain from giving our sin nature what it wants. From giving our flesh its desires. Now notice at the end of verse 11 what Peter's goal is in this instruction. It's the protection of the Christian soul. He says our, our sinful cravings, our fleshly desires, they wage war against your soul. Now, that's sober. That's sober. That's something inside of us that looks delicious to us would, in fact, be dangerous to us, to our souls. There's a warfare going on in the Christian life. We have three enemies in this war, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are accustomed as Christians often to talking about the world and its problems, and we, we blame everything on the devil. You know the one enemy in this combat we seldom seem to want to fight? It's the flesh. It's the sin nature. And it's interesting. That's the one enemy that's behind enemy lines. The world and the devil are out there. That third enemy, the flesh, is in here. He somehow made it into our territory, and he's brought the war to us. 
But, beloved, it's important that we recognize that we are in a war, and it is a war for our very own souls. And one of the enemies against our soul is in us. It's sinful desire. It comes from the sin nature. So I want to camp out right here just for a second because I think this is really important in terms of how we live and, and how we experience and enjoy the victory that Christ has purchased for us. So every Christian who trusts in Christ is saved from sin. But we still have this sin nature, this indwelling sin. And again, this is what Peter means when he refers to the, to the flesh now. Notice now that the text does not say we're to abstain from the actions of the flesh. We are to do that. But notice that's not where the focus is. It's deeper than that. The Bible says that we are to abstain from the passions or the desires of the flesh. Right? So we're not fighting this thing at the level of external activity. We've got to be fighting this thing at the level of internal desire. And what are those passions? The Apostle Paul gives us a catalog of sinful desires in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. See if any of these feel familiar. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That last sentence is Paul's way of saying what Peter just said, that these things war against your soul. Paul says the folks who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The desire to do any of these things, or he says, or things like these, is a work of our sin nature. And here's what we have to ask ourselves. We see a catalog like that is, have we felt these desires? Some of these might sound a little far-fetched or ancient, like sorcery. We tend to sort of just think about that in Harry Potter. But some of these walk down our street, don't they? And a lot of these are everyday temptations that we face. Sexual immorality is everywhere in this society. We live in a hyper, over-sexualized culture. It's everywhere. Most people think nothing of enmity, being hostile with somebody, or strife, arguing with folks, or jealousy, or anger. In this culture, those are respectable sins. In this culture, people who tell us they are protecting the faith online with their watch blogs are, are just flowing over with this stuff of strife, and envy, and anger, and jealousy. Anybody here wanted to get drunk lately? Don't, don't raise your hands. It's not not the part where you participate out loud. Anybody been jealous of somebody for some reason? I can't believe they got the promotion. I've been here longer than them. My work is da-da-da-da, and, and this person just 
two years in, and they ain't done half the stuff I've done. How they, how they get ahead before me? No, nah, bro, I ain't going over there because so-and-so going to be over there. No, I don't rock with him. You meant what he did. I'm still mad. Yeah, we don't use these words, right? Strife, enmity. But that don't mean the flesh don't desire these things. These things are common, but common doesn't mean neutral or natural, especially for the Christian. By putting this list in the Bible, God is lovingly warning us of what to watch out for in our hearts, for our fleshly desires. So it's crucial that the Christian understand not only what some of these desires are, but understand how sinful desires work and what they produce in the end. If we don't, now we're going to be deceived by our desires and cause a world of destructive hurt in our own souls and in the lives of other people. So to understand what's at risk and how desires work, look with me at James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. So if Galatians 5 is giving us a partial list of things that are the works of the flesh, James chapter 1 is going to give us a sort of study of the, the sort of working, the process, and the outcomes of the flesh. Notice chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's temptation. But when he has been stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now stop right there. In our battle with the flesh, in our battle with temptation, the first thing that James wants us to know is that there's a reward on the line. That there is a crown of righteousness for people who withstand the temptation. He's not promising that we won't be tempted. He's not promising that there's a day that we'll have such complete victory in this life that nothing will ever tempt us. No, the flesh is indwelling. The sin nature is in us. It's always sort of testing the boundaries of our perimeter defenses to find if there's a crack in the wall where it can enter. There's going to be temptation. James says here, the first thing to remember, though, is that God has wired in such a way, if you stand and withstand, there's a great reward, a crown of righteousness for everyone who does that. See, whenever the tempting trial comes, it's the people, James says in verse 12, who love God and hold out for the crown that are blessed in God's sight. You want to be blessed? James says, withstand temptation. Love God and hold on. Then he moves on, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God, notice, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So he's told us about the reward. Now he's given us a practical theology to remember in the, in the sort of vice grip of temptation. He says, this is the theology we have to keep in mind when we are tempted. God is holy. That means he cannot. It is impossible to tempt God or to seduce God with evil. It ain't in him. It has no attraction to him. It cannot overcome him. It will not draw him away from his holy, righteous, good self. So when we are tempted now, we can't be looking around blaming God for the temptation. It didn't come from him. 
He didn't produce it. And yes, he has entrusted to us the stewardship of that temptation, but he's not to blame for it. James said, we've got to get that right now because there's been many a casualty, many a victim who became a victim to their temptation because they began to blame God for it rather than go to God to withstand it. Say, no, 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 no. God is not tempting you with evil. He would never do that. If we feel a sinful desire and we feel tempted to act on it, it's not God's fault or God's doing. God is holy. It's the enemy in us that we got to deal with. James goes on, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is, notice the words here, lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where the problem is. Most people think our enemies are out there and our solutions are inside. The Bible says the enemy is inside and the solution is outside with Christ. Notice how our desires speak to us. They entice. They seduce. They don't come to us loud and threatening. If you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm going to... No, they come to you softly like, wouldn't this be good? Wouldn't that be nice? Other people seem to be enjoying it. Why don't you enjoy it? God understands. He wants you to be happy. This will make you happy. It's how Satan and sin always speaks. With a hiss of seduction. So we got to learn to hear that voice and know what, what voice is speaking to us. It comes from inside us and it wants to act out. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. You see the chain reaction that gets started? There's the seduction. Then there's the conception and the pregnancy and the birth and the child raising. It's interesting that James uses that, that analogy. I mean, even the selection of the analogy tells us something about how intimately and sweetly seduction speaks to us and temptation speaks to us. But you see the process, the chain reaction, right? There's desire, then there's conception, the acting on the desire, and that acting on the desire brings forth sin, and sin grows. It grows up into a whole adult. And when sin grows up into a whole adult and dominates the life, it ends in death. This is the war that's going on against our soul. We've got to understand this, beloved, if we would make progress in sanctification. Right? The next time that desire entices us, we have to ask ourselves, am I really ready to die for this? That's the end of it. We, we keep thinking about, do I really want this? And, and that's where the seduction is happening. So we keep thinking about the want of this in only positive terms. And, and we just are sort of bothered when we are reminded that it's wrong. 
Leave me alone. This looks good to me. We all turn into Gollum, my precious. We've got to ask ourselves a question that takes in view the whole chain reaction. Not does this look good to me, for the fruit looked good to Eve. It looked pleasant to her. This is how Satan has been tempting from the beginning to make things look pleasing and beautiful that in the end are destructive. So we've got to ask the question about the end. What end am I wanting? Do I really want to die for this? So we've got to fight our sins at the level of our cravings. Got to fight our sins at the level of our wants. That's where we win the warfare, right? The level of our, of our wants. And so sometimes we are fighting at the level of our behavior. And we're into sort of behavior modification. I'm going to stop this this time. I'm going to stop that that time. And that has its place. I'm not knocking that. We have to do that sometimes. But only doing that is like mowing the yard full of weeds and never putting down weed kill. The weed's just going to come back. If you don't uproot the weed and get a different desire and kill the old desire, it just keeps sort of sprouting up through the cracks, through the soil. So we, we must put our sinful desires to death. We can't nurse them. We can't feed them. We can't play with them. We can't coddle them. They come to us with the emotional attachment we feel to newborn babies. Seems so sweet and innocent. But they're not innocent and they're not harmless. We've got to put them to death. This is what Galatians 5 verse 24 says. When Paul finishes that section on the flesh, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, he says in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? This is a, this is a reality in the Christian life. If we have believed in Christ and trusted in Christ, there's a sense in which this death has already occurred and we, we need to sort of stand in it and play it out practically, and repeat it. In other words, we got to treat our sinful desires the way Jesus treated our actual sin, by crucifying it. In the process of saying no to the flesh and putting it to death, that's what, that's what we call sanctification, at least a, a good half of it. We grow in holiness, even in a hostile world, by killing these sinful desires. Then, if we want real and lasting victory, we have to change our passions. If we don't choose new passions and new desires, then that threat of sin will always be lurking in our hearts. So Romans 13, 13 and 14 calls us this way. It says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, we put on Christ and we starve the flesh. Because how we live impacts our souls. Every time we abstain from the passions of the flesh, we win a battle in the war for our souls. Refusing a sinful desire is like capturing an enemy spy and locking them in a, in a hidden black site. Every time we do that, we take one more step toward complete victory. So a couple of applications. 
mostly in the form of questions. Do we have any desires that we abstain from because we know they come from the flesh? Do we ever question our desires? Or do we generally trust that what we want is obviously good? Why do we want what we want? Where does that desire come from? Do we ever choose a holy desire, which may feel like crawling uphill, or are we always looking to coast downhill toward our desires? I mean, in the end, are we simply going to comply with our enemy, the enemy of our souls, and become traitors to our own life? Or are we going to crucify the flesh and stand with Christ? And, and, and these kinds of questions apply to us not just as individuals, but they, they get worked out in our relationships to one another. So we apply this to friendship and ask ourselves, what, what kind of friend am I? Right? Am, am I the kind of friend who cares enough about your soul, right, that I would give you warnings and admonitions and challenges and rebukes regarding your desires? Am I the kind of friend who would receive that? Who would receive from my friends warnings and admonitions and rebukes and corrections and challenges about my passions when they, when they come from the flesh? Those are good friends. Those are loving friends. Uh, yes, men and yes, women make lousy friends because they won't tell you when your soul's in danger. Will we listen to friends who urge us to avoid sinful desires or will we treat our sinful desires as our friends? Many times I have seen Christians take offense when another Christian lovingly pointed out that something was fleshly or worldly or sinful. They took offense and you know what they did next? They then gave themselves to that desire. And many times they interpret the, the temporary relief or pleasure as a friendly comfort while rejecting the comfort of a true friend. Some people can't tell when their souls are being overwhelmed and killed by the things they want. Fleshly desire may not be violent desire. It may creep over us quietly and politely. Your flesh will even make allowances for some godly desires as long as its desires find room in your heart too. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. That's Peter's first point. Second point, shorter. How we live matters for our public witness too. Not just matter for uh, us personally, but it matters for the people who are around us as well. Peter writes in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So verse 12 turns us away from concern for our own souls, and it turns us out on life among the Gentiles. Gentiles is a word that the Bible uses 
uh, in two ways. It uses it physically and it uses it spiritually. Uh, physically, a Gentile basically is just someone who's not an Israelite, it's not a Jew, is not descended from Abraham in terms of physical lineage. But spiritually, the Bible uses Gentile often to refer uh, to the consequence of being outside of Abraham, being outside of faith. These are people who don't have a relationship with God, who don't know God, who are unbelievers. And Paul uses it, that phrase, in, uh, that, that word in both senses in a place like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Apostle Paul writes, write, writes there, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, right? So he's talking about natural, physical lineage there called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time, now he's moving to the spiritual realities of what it meant to be a Gentile, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a desperate condition to be an unbeliever. Uh, pretty much all of us in this room, uh, either flesh or Gentiles, and because of that, all of us were Gentiles spiritually. We were outside of God's promises and outside of a relationship with, with him through his covenant with Israel. We did not know God, and we honestly did not have hope beyond this life. And those are just a couple of things when we look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 12, when he talks about your conduct among the Gentiles. Just two quick things to make explicit. First, the Bible assumes that the Christian life is lived among the Gentiles. We don't seek to live a life in a holy huddle, sealed off from the rest of the world. We are exiles passing through this world. We're sojourners passing through this world. And so we are meant to be engaging with people who are not Christians. Secondly, notice that our living among the Gentiles is for the purpose of witnessing to them through our lives. Those who do not yet believe in Jesus ought to see in our lives a commercial for the difference that Jesus makes. Our living differently should advertise the difference Christ makes. That's why we get the command of verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable. Sojourners and exiles are, must maintain honorable behavior. We don't get to wild out because this world is not our home. We don't get to act any kind of way because this is, this is not what we are living for. This instruction reminds us of what Peter has already said in chapter 1, verse 17. Look back over there. He says, and if you call on him who judges impartially each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Right? So there in verse 17, he's saying, conduct yourselves with reverence. Here in, in chapter 2, verse 12, he's saying the same thing, just a different word. Conduct yourselves honorably. If we revere God, if we respect God, we will live honorably before men. By honorable, Peter means worthy of respect, of admiration, praise. Honorable conduct brings a, a good reputation to that person or to that group that they represent. It's the opposite of shameful behavior. So our goal must be to avoid shame and to pursue honor in the way we live. Once we begin to live for honor, for, for Christ and for the gospel, then we got to keep it that way. Notice the text says, verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. So he's not talking about, oh, yeah, we did that good thing one time in 1987, right? 
or last week, you know, I gave at the office. Don't knock on my door no more today, right? No, it's a, it's a, a conduct. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's maintained. It's regular. We are to always be pursuing an honorable life before God. Keep this in mind. So we look at verse 12. It is not the Christian or the church who judges what is honorable con conduct in this verse. Did you notice that? The Bible gives permission to the unbelieving world to make that judgment. Uh, for example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 21, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And that, I think, leads us to an important principle, beloved. We should never limit our judgment of ourselves to ourselves. We're just too prone to grade ourselves on a curve. We're just too likely to be light with ourselves when it comes to observing what our lives are really like. But God here, for our own sanctification, for our own growth, and for our own holiness, says, you know what? You live in a world among people who don't yet believe, but they ain't crazy. They see what they see, right? And, and, and sometimes they are the ones who are the mirror, right, who, who will tell you whether or not your life is honorable or not. Now, sometimes they're wilding because they hate Jesus, and, and, and they say things that aren't true. But, but sometimes they're like, no, actually, they got their finger on the thing. Right? And so we should never limit our assessment of ourselves to what we think about ourselves. No, there are other people who give us real and accurate information as to who we are. Proud Christians think only their opinion matters. Humble Christians understand that sometimes other people see us better than we see ourselves. Here's the goal of living this way among the Gentiles. You see it at the end of verse 12. So that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, an honorable life will turn slander into praise. A life well lived will turn accusation into admiration for God. He's saying if you, if you actually want to have an effect in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, you want to have an effect even in your family where there may be people who don't believe in Jesus yet, live a righteous, clean, honorable life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And something powerful happens. People who would normally speak against you as evildoers, well, they can see your good deeds. And those very good deeds in God's grace may cause them to praise God on the day of visitation. And again, as Christians, we know people speak against us. And we shouldn't be out here trying to be popular with the world. That's not what Peter is saying. All right? As Christians, we, we should understand that, that evildoers and sinners are often going to think and speak sinfully. And their slander will not always be true or accurate. For example, Christians are sometimes called bigots because we don't support homosexuality or transgender lifestyles because of what the Bible teaches. We believe in 
what God has said is the, the nature of man and woman and the nature of, of, of marriage and intimacy between a man or a woman. And in the world's mind, that's old-fashioned. That's retrograde. That's the, that's the thought of bigots. Well, okay, I guess we got to be called that because we're not about to jump off the Bible. Right? Or, or they may call us misogynists because we believe what the Bible teaches about how God has ordered the home and the church and the roles of men and women in the home of the church. Now, we don't hold to that because we hate women. We hold to that because we know God is good and we know that God has made us. He's our designer and he knows how we are, are, are going to flourish in the best way possible. That that is actually the good life, not, not a repressive, oppressive kind of life that we are pursuing. And, and we understand that we're going to often be misunderstood about that. And we understand that there are lots of Christians who have abused that and misapplied that. And, and yet, we're not going to move off the Bible humbly and joyfully. We're going to hold to God's word and try to live it out with meekness. In the world, we don't expect them to understand all of that. And they will heap scorn and derision and slander upon the church. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Didn't the Lord Jesus himself tell us this would be the case? Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. Jesus says there, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, you're not blessed if it's true. <laughs> right? right? Like I said, sometimes they get it right. Right? But if they say all this kind of stuff against you falsely because of Jesus, you're blessed to be associated with Jesus. He says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Take your place in the line of the prophets and be rejected and scorned by the world because Christ will give you a reward far greater than the embarrassment and the ignominy that you suffer at the hands of unbelievers. Just line up. Just line up. And when, the, and when the time comes and somebody says, next, it's your turn to take the slings and the arrows. Take them in faith, rejoicing and being glad that you were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Be honorable. Not blameworthy. Jesus talked about this many times. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus seems to think that slander and persecution and reviling are facts of the Christian life. It's a mistake, therefore, for Christians to try to duck it and dodge it and bend their behavior and twist their character to be accepted by the world. It's just no friendship between God and the world. It's just hostility. You've got to choose your side. And you got to stay on that side. As for me and my house, we're on the Lord's side. Choose you this day whom you will serve. This is what comes to us over and over again in the Bible. 
So it's a mistake for us to try to fit in. It's also a mistake for us, for Christians, to, to answer with, with slanderous and angry words of our own. I mean, we can protest and fight and attack in return, but that's not the example that Jesus lives, leaves. Look with me down at verse 23, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Or in the prophetic words of the first lady, Michelle Obama, when they go low, <laughs> we go high. <laughs> we go high. And what a high bar that is. I, I, don't, I don't take verse 12 to be like easy. Mainly because of verse 11. Right? So while we're fighting this warfare internally, we're dealing also with this external stuff. Right? And so the idea that we, we, we're cursed, we bless, first you got to get over your own heart, don't you? <laughs> right? And so there's a real struggle. This can be a real pitched battle in, in our souls and in our conflict with the world. And yet God gives us a very high Christ-centered bar. When he was crucified for us, he didn't slander, he didn't revile, he didn't curse. He entrusted himself to his father. He said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. He died. Not for himself, but for us. That we would be saved from God's judgment, his righteous judgment against us because of the sins that we've not only done, but that we have desired so deeply in our hearts. So Jesus becomes the pattern. We, we seek to live the way he lived in the world. And Peter here is telling us uh, in this book that our best defense of the faith isn't our theological and philosophical arguments, isn't our clever explanation of difficult doctrine in the Bible. Our best defense of the faith is usually how we live. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, verses 14 to 16. Peter says there, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Sounds like he spent time with Jesus, doesn't it? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now notice, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice what he says. He says the people are going to come to you and ask you why you have hope when they don't when the world looks so hopeless. And I'm really going to come to you and ask you what systematic theology you read lately. They're going to have seen you living with hope and rejoicing with hope. And they want to know where that comes from. And he says, now, always be ready to give them an answer. Again, not a, not a theological treatise and, and, and not a theological textbook, but 
But I want you to give an answer, a practical answer as to where that hope comes from. And Peter says, now, when you give that answer, I want you to understand something. How you give that answer, how you live as you give that answer is vitally important. Do it with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience. Why? Because when you give that answer, some people are still going to slander you. But be the kind of person that when someone slanders you, other people are like, you must be the one with the problem. Because that brother, that sister, those are good folks. Anybody mistreating them must be the ones with the bad heart. Peter says, be that kind of person. And the, the result is, when they revile your good behavior in Christ, they might be put to shame for that. How we live has this effect to, to, to bring a, a godly shame, a godly sorrow, a godly repentance, uh, a questioning of, of hope and where can I get that hope and how can I have some and, and a questioning of why you do these good deeds. And, and, and our, explanation, our explanation can't be because I went to college or because I got a good job or because or mama and daddy love me even. The explanation that should make the difference is I met Jesus. He's real. He's alive. He's good, he's, he's, he's lowly, he's meek. Sinners can come to him. And, and he doesn't crush them. He doesn't kick them out of his presence. He doesn't, he doesn't remind them of all their guilt and their shame. He doesn't sort of open a scroll and say, I've been watching you since you were two and here are all the sins that you have done. When they come to him, he just opens his arms. And he loves them. And, and he brings them close to his bosom. And he holds them in a, in a warm and, and slightly too tight hug. And he sings over them in love. He says, welcome home. I've missed you. This is where you belong. I made a way for you to be here. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe the Father anything. Just come. Believe. Trust. He got you. And you tell them, when I, when I did that, when I went into his arms and heard his voice and, and felt his touch, <laughs> something broke in me. Something changed in me. Something opened in me. I, I saw the world and myself differently through God's eyes. I could see my sin more clearly, and I was shocked and I could see then God's goodness more clearly, and I was in awe. And, and, and when I went to him, I found out his goodness was never ending, that he was always like that. He was always loving. He was always kind. He was always just, but also merciful. And, and, and I could come to him again and again and again, not hiding, but, but being really seen and really loved. That's why I have hope, because God has seen me and he has loved me. And he's gave his son for me. And he has told me in his word that nothing will separate me from his love in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so I don't have reason to despair, only to hope. And this hope can be yours the same way it became mine. By believing on Jesus, who died for your sins and was raised again three days later. So that the Father's arms will be wide open to you. And you can come home. That, my friend, is the answer we give. In gentleness and respect and with a good conscience. We tell people about Jesus. And what he's done for them. And we invite them to believe on him. 
and have eternal life with him. And we do that this morning. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you've not yet put your faith in Jesus. You, you maybe have heard of Jesus and you've been to church services before and you've heard sermons before, some better, some, some worse, some longer, some shorter, some clearer, some muddled, and, and you got thoughts about Jesus. Hey, if you've not put your faith in him, today is the day of salvation. Trust in him. Come to him. Live for him. You will never regret it. As hard as it sometimes gets, you will never regret it. Even if you have to put to death desires that you have cherished your whole life or desires that seem never to let you go, even if you have to crucify those things you want and have taken for granted as good, Jesus is better. His love is better than life. His word is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And he gives a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, to those who trust in him. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Follow him. He's the Lord of your life. We should conclude. How we live matters when it comes to our personal walk. It matters when it comes to our public witness. It matters to people who are lost in sin. It matters to pilgrims who are following Jesus. We have urgent need, beloved, for our own soul's sake and for the sake of those souls around us to pay attention to how we live. Does your personal walk reveal you are winning the war for your own soul? And does our public witness Suggest and teach to others that God is to be glorified and praised. Does our public witness win souls for the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray so. And may God give us more grace. Let's pray together. Father, our souls cry out this morning, hallelujah, what a Savior. For you have rescued us from death and the sin that causes death and from the desires that give birth to sin. You have freed us, Lord, from, from our worst enemy, our very own selves. You have saved us and rescued us that we might, Lord, forever be with you and in your presence and enjoy, enjoy your presence forever. We thank you for Christ Jesus who died for us and more than that was raised for us so that our sins would be punished on the cross and we would bear them no more and his righteousness would be draped upon us like robes and, and we would forever be seen as clean and pure in your sight. We thank you that Jesus has done this for us and we thank you that you have called us only to trust in him and to follow him. We pray that you give us grace to continue to do that no matter how hostile the world gets. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us grace to live holy lives, pleasing lives in your sight, lives that put your enemies to shame and causes them to repent and to praise you. We pray that our lives, O oh Lord, would be a testimony that you have not only saved our souls but have won the war for our souls, that you keep us even as we Keep pursuing you. 
Oh, Lord, bless us. Help somebody this morning with their desires. Help somebody with their cravings. Help, help someone, help us all to put to death those things that displease you, that we might live more fully in the eternal life that you give. We pray this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.